unscripted. Each episode is available to view on YouTube, so be sure to check us out. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Most people know the 1909 First Presidency Statement on the Origin of Man. Mm -hmm. And that has some very anti-evolution statements in it. It's very easy to read them that way. And it was written by Orson Whitney. And reading some of his unpublished stuff, he was strongly anti-evolution. They were meant to be read that way. But in 1925, after the Scopes trial, the church puts out another statement. It's a new First Presidency. And they call this a Mormon view of evolution. They deliberately publish it in a bunch of non-LDS newspapers. They want the world to know this is the Mormon view of evolution. And they take that 1909 statement and they chop it down a whole lot. And among all the things they take out are all those lines in the sand that got left in. Hey everybody, welcome back to Saints Unscripted. Today we are here with Ben Spackman, who I have been just trying to get on the show, hoping that you'd come on the show for so long now because you are one of the only people talking about some of the things that we're going to be talking about today. So I'm grateful you're here. Uh, we're going to be talking about the history. Okay, so a few weeks ago, we did an episode about evolution and the church's stance on evolution. It was in the faith and belief segment. Um, and we talk about how the church doesn't have an official stance. Um, and we talk about how we could talk about the history of this subject in the church for a very long time. You are here today to talk to us a little bit about that history. But before we get into that, maybe maybe introduce yourself. Talk to us about um, what you're all about, what your uh, academic background is, and okay. some of the projects you're working on. Yeah, so uh, I'm a historian, and I'm a very eclectic historian because I started in ancient Near East and Old Testament. And mm -hmm. in my graduate program at the University of Chicago, modern modern started at 323 BC with the death of Alexander the Great. Okay. So everything in my program was before 323 BC. And now I'm working on a PhD in American religious history focused on 20th century. So when I tell people I'm a historian, they're like, what period? And I say, well, 20th century or before 323 BC. In hmm. between is just a little bit of a gap that yeah. I don't, that I don't really cover. So, um, I came to my PhD in American religious history with a really deep background in uh, ancient Near Eastern literature and Old Testament and languages. I did uh, several years of Hebrew and Aramaic and Assyrian and Babylonian and Ugaritic and some others that people haven't heard of because they're pretty obscure. And uh, in my PhD, my big focus was American religious history, but I also did kind of a tertiary in history of science and reformation. So when it comes to the issue of evolution, there are a couple of different subtopics where you need to know what's going on to handle it well. You need some science, which I have because I was pre-med once upon a time, I actually took the MCAT and did my hospital volunteer hours. Okay. You need to know what Genesis meant to the Israelites. So you need some ancient history, you need to control the languages and the literature and the, the interpretation around that topic. And then for the recent part, you need to understand why Americans have interpreted the Bible the various ways they have. And so there's where my Reformation comes in. There's where my American religious history comes in. And then history of science helps with the 
scientific side of that. That is, what did we learn and when? And what was the evidence that shifted us in those directions? So when it comes to talking about evolution, I'm not a scientist, but I can talk about the science a little, but mostly on the, the history side. And I can talk about why people in the 1920s understood Genesis the way they did, why that changed at certain points, what pushed people to read Genesis to exclude evolution. Um, it's, it's really interesting history, and it's not quite what people think. Um, that is, that's bait. That's bait right there. <laughs> Well, I'm excited to be able yeah. to talk about the 20th century stuff, uh, the 20th century history of evolution uh, today. And just as a kind of a, a sneak peek, we do have been here for two additional episodes uh, that we're going to be filming after this episode. My only regret is that you're not here for 10 episodes. But as best we can, because this is your dissertation topic, is is the history of the uh, evolution Specifically, it's Latter-day Saint evolution, creationism, conflict in the 20th century. Okay, perfect. There's so, no one better to have on yeah. this set today. So yeah. where do we start? Where does this discussion about evolution in the church begin? Um, I mean... Evolution goes back before Darwin. Okay. He's kind of the flashpoint. In 1859, he publishes his book. And it doesn't make a big splash in America because we're moving right into the Civil War. It's kind of distracting. Mm -hmm. And uh, you find mentions in the church of kind of Darwin and geology, but it's not really a big issue yet. Okay. Um, in the early 1900s, what happens is you have what's called the fundamentalist modernist controversy. And you say fundamentalist and people automatically go, oh, young earth, seven 24-hour days of creation. And this is one of those things where what you think, you know, is, is actually quite wrong. Okay. Um, you can find President Grant in general conference, I think in 1931, saying, we are fundamentalists. And the reason why he said that was because the fundamentalists were reacting to all of this scholarship colliding at once. Um, biological scholarship with Darwin was colliding with German biblical scholarship about who really wrote parts of the Bible. How did we get it? Mm -hmm. Was colliding with um, social change, like people moving into cities, the state having more influence over what they were being educated in. And uh, there are a couple factors I'm leaving out. But... What the modernists did in reacting to all this scholarship was they said, you know, maybe the core of Christianity is really being kind to your neighbor, being Christ-like. And so we're going to focus on the social gospel, and we don't think things like the divinity of Christ or the reality of miracles are really that central to Christianity. Hmm. And the fundamentalists come back and they say, no, they're, they're, they're fundamental. kind of fundamental <laughs> to Christianity. Yeah. And... Um, even people who write for the series of books that are called The Fundamentals, they're not particularly anti-evolution, necessarily. Hmm. They're not young earth. They're not even necessarily global flood kind of people. They're pro-Jesus. They're, they're pro-Jesus and they're pro-tradition. Tradition! Okay. Um, and it starts off, fundamentalism starts off as kind of a university intellectual movement pushing back against the modernists. And then World War I happens, and World War I really destroys a lot of optimism. And 
because a lot of the biblical scholarship that was undermining traditional ideas about who wrote Genesis, about whether the Gospels were reliable, came out of Germany. And Germany had been the aggressor. Mm. Germany was seen as Darwinist, as evolutionist, as survival of the fittest and imposing their will on everyone. And all of a sudden in the 1920s, evolution kind of comes to the forefront as the cause of all of our social ills. It's, it's undermining faith in Jesus. It's leading to violence. It's leading to German aggression. Mm. And so in the 1920s, you get evolution starting to become kind of the tip of the spear for fundamentalism. And you get the the Scopes trial in 1925 talking about, is it legal or not to teach evolution in public schools? Um, so this is all kind of the background. Yeah. Latter-day Saints, once you've explained the fundamentalist modernist controversy there, you can see why they line up really easily on the fundamentalist side. Sure. They're like, we are all about Jesus and miracles and the reality of the resurrection and things like that. And uh, it turns out a bunch of church leaders were close friends with a guy who kind of becomes a de facto leader of the fundamentalist movement, or at least people perceive him that way. That's William Jennings Bryan, who was at the Scopes trial. He writes some books that are very pro-Jesus, but also kind of anti-evolution. And he is anti-evolution not because of anything that the Bible says that you might think. He believes in an old earth. He believes in evolution of plants and animals, but not humans. Because hmm. he thinks if humans evolved then maybe we are just animals, not children of God. And what does that do to morality? Right. And so he opposes evolution and uh, he knows a bunch of apostles. He preaches in the tabernacle. Heber J. Grant is a huge fan of William Jennings Bryan's books. They uh, distribute them by the hundreds to missionaries. It's like the church Christmas gift to missionaries. Wow. And he marks them up at home. He loves them. And the church publishes a bunch of... Jennings uh, sermons in church magazines. Hmm. And so there's this strong alignment with this fundamentalist group that started shifting anti-evolution. Mm -hmm. But what's really interesting is that Latter-day Saints at this time, kind of before 1954, are very mixed. You can find church leaders like Joseph Fielding Smith who are very anti-evolution because they think scriptures require a young earth no death before the fall, and that means there's simply no chance for evolution to happen, which because it requires right. long periods of time and death. Yeah. Um, but then you also find some people kind of in the middle where they're kind of open to it, maybe. Kind like, of like uh, a B.H. Roberts or, um, or Talmadge? Talmadge and Roberts are yes and no. So, like I was just saying, in order for evolution to work, you have to have these uh, constituent parts. Like you have to have an old earth. Mm -hmm. You have to have death operating for a long time. Uh, you have to have uh, variety. Um, and they are all on board with those. But then you also find Talmadge making statements at different times where in the 1880s, he gives a talk on evolution where he's like, I see no reason why God couldn't have used evolution to create man's body, but the spirit is divine. Hmm. On the other hand, in the 1930s, he says things like uh, Cro-Magnon man and all of these other fossils, we are not related to them. Hmm. We're a separate species. He doesn't imply special creation, but he does say all of these fossils that people point to as evolution, we're not in that line. Hmm. We're separate. Okay. So it's kind of a neither here nor there. Yeah. 
but I'm thinking of uh, Anthony W. Ivins, who's in the first presidency. He's actually Heber J. Grant's cousin. Hmm. And Ivins gives a general conference talk in which he's a little bit anti-evolution, but then he pulls back and he says, look, whatever there is of development, whatever there has been of evolution, I'm not a scientist, but whatever there was of evolution, God was involved. And so he's kind of taking an agnostic, as long as God's involved, I'm not sure we know or care yeah. about this other stuff. A nuanced view. Yeah. But then what I had no idea about was that you have a lot of people in the church education system at the time, which was relatively small, who are very pro-evolution in some ways. Hmm. So there's a guy named Adam Benyon who mm -hmm. is... Um, is he a member of the Twelve? He becomes a member of the Twelve in Later. 53. He okay. replaces Witso, okay. actually. Yeah. Uh, he's a businessman by training, but in the 1920s, he is in some um, administrative oversight over church education system. The titles change and the job changes, and I can't keep it straight in my head, but he, I think he's kind of the equivalent of the church commissioner of education. Okay. And he gives several talks at training meetings to seminary and institute and BYU professors where he says things like, I plead with you to be like President Ivan's, be liberal in your views around this. Do not let the prejudices of the past blind you to what truth is being revealed by God today. And it's clear from a couple things that he's pretty, he's not anti-evolution by any means. He's not a scientist. He can't sign off on it, but he's begging people to not just throw it in the garbage can. Yeah. There's a guy named John M. Whitaker, who is also kind of a church education administer, administrator. And uh, there's, um, there's someone who comes away from one of his talks and says, he convinced me. I'm an evolutionist. I'm not losing my testimony, but I believe in change over long periods of time. And this science is amazing that God is revealing. And so you have this influence on the church education system, which at the time was encouraging people to go get training in biblical studies and things. Very open to evolution, pushing it even in certain subtle kinds of ways. And um, they're getting trained at the University of Chicago in biblical studies and other things. And so there's a lot of not necessarily full-throated embrace of evolution, but there is an openness and kind of a a quest for knowledge. Is, which, this, is this what God's revealing right now through science? Which is interesting because if you if you take kind of a superficial look at the history, you might not notice those things, and it might seem kind of overwhelmingly one-sided yeah. against evolution. They're very hidden. I mean, another aspect of this is most people know the 1909 First Presidency Statement on the Origin of Man, mm -hmm. and that has some very anti-evolution statements in it. It's very easy to read them that way, and it was written by Orson Whitney. And reading some of his unpublished stuff, he was strongly anti-evolution. They were meant to be read that way. Um, the first presidency actually took some things out of his draft of that. They were like, no, we're not willing to sign off on this. They calmed it down uh, a little they, bit. They, they calmed it down a little. They were not willing to go that far. He, he poked some fun at other Christian religions that could accept evolution. And he said, the Latter-day Saints make no such concession. Hmm. Uh, he drew a line in the sand and we were on this one and... But in 1925, after the Scopes trial, the church puts out another statement. It's a new first presidency, and they call this a Mormon view of evolution. They deliberately publish it in a bunch of non-LDS newspapers. They want the world to know this is the Mormon view of evolution. And they take that 1909 statement and they chop it down 
a whole lot. And among all the things they take out are all those lines in the sand that got left in. And so if you only know the 1925, you might go, okay, they're theists, they believe in Jesus. They seem a little bit hedgy about evolution, but they're not, they're not anti necessarily. Now, what's interesting is that very quickly after 1925, after that statement, 1925 mostly disappears from the record. When people quote, what is the church's position on evolution? It's the 1909. Mm. And I, I have wondered why that is because 1925 is more recent. It's a first presidency statement. The title even has evolution in it. So why are we quoting 1909? And some people have said, well, 1925 is just a short version of 1909. It's just echoing and saying the same thing. And I'm like, it's what it doesn't say that is important and significant there, especially if you can see Whitney's draft that they removed stuff from, yeah. and then 1909 that they removed stuff from. And between 1909 and 1925, a couple of things happen at the top level. James E. Talmadge becomes an apostle, I think in 1911. Uh, Johnny Witso becomes an apostle. And there are some prominent LDS scientists who deal with uh, fossils, paleontology, and geology, the age of the earth, like Frederick Pack. Frederick Pack is married to one of Heber J. Grant's nieces, and he actually calls him Uncle Heber. I think they, they knew each other decently well. <laughs> and Frederick J. Pack is very pro-evolution, very old earth, very upfront about it. And the church actually puts together a committee to meet with him regularly on evolution, to, to get his views on it. Um, they publish some slightly pro-evolution stuff. Um, they consult some other scientists. There's a BYU professor in 1920 who's actually the only BYU professor in 1920 who has a PhD at the time. Um, 1914 from the University of uh, Wisconsin at Madison. This is um, Martin P. Henderson. So in 1920, the church leadership, you know, the first presidency and quorum of the Twelve, invite Henderson to come give them a lecture on evolution. Hmm. And the notes from this lecture are about 25 pages long, and they are detailed, and they are scientific. And from his other writings, he was very much an old earth, the science says evolution kind of guy. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think what happens between 1909 and 1925 is they are really pushing hard to say, we need the best information possible on this. They get Talmadge, they get Witso, they get Frederick Pack, they get uh, Henderson from BYU. And so I think by 1925, they're saying, okay, the science is going in a certain direction. We're still going to stake ourselves on Jesus and the gospel, but we don't need to be this defensive about the science. And so all that stuff gets edited out of the 1925 Mormon view of evolution. Okay. So there's the strong people against it. But there's also kind of this openness and a willingness to consult the science and even kind of teach it in a CES setting. And most people don't know about that because it's really been obscured. Yeah. And and I'd say kind of maybe overshadowed by some very strong statements from people like Joseph Fielding Smith. Mm -hmm. And when does he come into the picture? Well, I, I know we're probably short on time, but... but um... Oh, we're not even into the 1950s here. Yeah, we got we to gotta move okay. here. Okay. So uh, Joseph Fielding Smith's first 
really anti-evolution talk that I can find is in 1918 in General Conference. And it was actually called pretty much the same thing as his 1954 anti-evolution book, The Origin and Destiny of Man. And he is kind of a young apostle. And he, the way he reads scripture, he thinks that scripture is essentially a divine encyclopedia of facts. As many do. As many do. And moreover, he thinks you don't need any expertise to read it. You don't need any kind of context, really. It's just plain language that God dictated. You don't interpret it. It don't is interpret. what it is. You don't. Yeah. And because of that, he sees scripture as requiring a young earth and no death before 6,000 years ago. And he believes that so strongly that he calls out anyone and everyone who crosses that line. At one point, he accuses President J. Reuben Clark in the first presidency, his senior, of rejecting the scriptures. Yikes. That's a bold move. He feels very strongly That's a bold about move. This. Yeah. Um, but he goes after other apostles. He goes after random gospel doctrine teachers in obscure Utah towns that he doesn't know. Um, and he gets really interested in scientists who defend scripture as he sees it. And so very early on, he starts drawing on people like uh, George McCready Price, who had written some geology books, but was a Seventh-day Adventist and was not actually a geologist, but was drawing on the vision of the founder of the Seventh-day Adventists hmm. um, and was self-taught in geology. But he calls him Professor Price because he had taught at the Seventh-day Adventist College and he built himself that way a little bit. And Price argued that all of these things that make the earth look old and all the fossils it was actually the flood that caused all that. Hmm. Okay. Very convenient. Yeah. Right? He, yeah. he both is able to slay the foe of evolution and defend the truths of the Bible as he sees them at the same time. Yeah. Well, to, to shorten or jump, in 1954, it's this huge pivotal year for a couple of reasons. Um, they've just proved that DNA is what passes traits on from person to person. This is when genetics really starts, right? Mm -hmm. um, in the Protestant world, which has been wrestling with this stuff too, there's a really important book by a guy named Bernard Ram called uh, Christian View of Science and Scripture. And what he argues is believing in the inerrancy of Scripture does not entail that Scripture is speaking in scientific terms. Mm. And so he is able to sever the idea that if scripture is true, it must be both scientific and accurate. And from that point on, you get this diversion uh, in the evangelical world where you get evangelical Bible scholars who study, you know, the context of Genesis and can write books about it and can say, I believe Genesis is inerrant. I believe it's true. It's absolutely not talking about science or a young earth. Hmm. Um, and then his book galvanizes some in the other direction. And they say, oh, well, this is clearly just unfaithful to Scripture and rejecting God. And uh, you get two evangelicals in 1961 who publish a book called The Genesis Flood that basically draws really heavily on George McCready Price, but because he's a Seventh-day Adventist, they cut all of that out. They essentially plagiarize his arguments. And one of them is a hydrological engineer who deals with water. And one of them is a theologian with a THD. And so the two of them, with their water expertise and their theological expertise and Price's geology arguments, 
This book in 1961 sells hundreds of thousands of copies. And all of a sudden, this is when fundamentalism in the United States starts being aligned with, you have to believe in a young earth, you have to believe that the days of Genesis mean this, and you have to believe in the global flood because that is what explains the Grand Canyon and fossils and the apparent age of the earth. Hmm. And this book and other books by these two guys get passed around in the church education system from the top down. They get recommended by seminarian institute leaders, by apostles from time to time as if you want reliable information on science and scripture, this is the stuff you should be reading. And so um, you get you get Smith's book in 1954, Man, His Origin and Destiny. And um, you get echoes of Smith by his son-in-law, Elder McConkie, who approached scripture and interpretation the same way he did. And between... This is Bruce R. McConkie. Yeah. Yeah. Between the two of them, they pretty much each had a book out every year from 1954 to like 1960. And Smith is the uh, president of the Quorum of the Twelve. Um, at some point, he actually gets called into the first presidency as an extra counselor. And so he, here's this senior, senior apostle who is literally the grandnephew of the founding prophet, who is saying, this is what scripture teaches, and this is what science says. And so from 1954 onwards, all of this kind of openness of the first half of the century just gets deliberately obscured because people like President Smith and Bruce R. McConkie thought they're interpreting and they're interpreting an old earth because they've been trained in science and they're giving into the philosophies of men. Hmm. So I think that's a great summary of, of what's going on here. <laughs> Maybe just in closing, how do you then reconcile the fact that we sustain Joseph Fielding Smith as a prophet of God? and Bruce R. McConkie as an apostle of God when um, when they have these very strong views that to some people within the church are not correct. Because again, yeah. the church doesn't have a stance on, an official stance on evolution. There are members of the church who believe in it. There yep. are members who don't. Yep. How do we reconcile the fact that we had a prophet that was very anti-evolution and whose statements are even still in some teaching manuals today? Yeah. Well, I mean, more broadly, uh, this is a question more or less for every prophet in any time. I mean, Moses taught a flat earth. Not going to throw him out for that. Yeah. Uh, he assumed a flat earth anyway. Um, you have Brigham Young and the priesthood ban. I mean, pick a prophet and advance several hundred years, and we're going to have some kind of problem with them, mm. I think. But uh, there's a story in Job where God speaks to Job out of the whirlwind, out of the maelstrom, as it were. It's not this calm, monolithic thing. There is so much going on. I mean, he's literally in the middle of a storm, yeah. and God speaks to him. And so, for me, when I think about prophets, the authority of prophets is not epistemological. It's ecclesiastical. Here's what I mean. Epistemology, philosophical word, it's about the nature of knowledge and how we know things. We tend to think of prophets are authoritative because God tells them stuff that no one else knows. Okay. And therefore, if they tell us stuff that's wrong, they don't really know stuff and they lose authority. Okay. And I think what we should be understanding is 
when God chooses someone as a prophet, he is putting some authority on them to represent him in a way, not because they know stuff necessarily, but because they have been chosen to lead the church. Okay. Think about, uh, I mean, it's an imperfect analogy, but think about the Supreme Court. Yeah. Those are the people who have been chosen and given the authority to make certain calls. Those calls may be wrong, but that doesn't mean they don't have the authority to do those things. Hmm. Um, I think of President Uchtdorf's statement that the the restoration is ongoing, yeah. that revelation is progressive, and that as the uh, as the whirlwind keeps spinning around us, God will continue to speak. And I think just as we have rightly moved away from Brigham Young and old ideas about race, we are moving away from other things. When we did teachings of the prophet Joseph Fielding Smith in Priesthood Relief Society, I don't know, eight years ago or something, mm -hmm. there was almost none of this in there. And yet it occupies a ton of his personal letters. Hmm. So um, it kind of reminds me of that just that idea that in the church we believe in continual revelation but not continuous revelation. Yeah. We don't believe that everything yeah. being said is revelation. I mean, you want to be as inspired as you can, but but God also isn't going to command in all things. And there's a reason why the prophet has counselors. Yeah. There's a reason why there's a council. If it were just, uh, you know, God shows up with the, the script for the day and hands it to the prophet. The prophet goes out and delivers it to everyone. This is what God said. You wouldn't need There all. would be no need for those. That's an interesting idea. And, you know, DNC gives us instructions on how to excommunicate the president of the church, right? Yeah. No need for that if it's an infallible prophet who is just God's teleprompter, mm. right? Interesting. But we, we tend to focus very, very heavily on the president of the church as the prophet with capital letters. Mm -hmm. and, and one of the things that's interesting around that is prior to David O. McKay in 1951, who apparently had the personal appearance and the personal charisma and magnetism that even non-LDS would look at him and say, who is that man? There is something about him. Prior to President McKay, when you said the prophet, you weren't talking about the current president of the church. You're talking about Joseph Smith. Hmm. But under McKay, who non-LDS thought this guy he's spiritual, he is prophetic. And he used to wear a white suit mm -hmm. around and he had a white shock of hair. I think under his 20 years of being president of the church, that term shifted until prophet became the president of the church. And we now think of the prophet. And then there are these other guys who talk in general conference too, but it's really, we've started looking at the one instead of kind of the, the council, the process, the mm -hmm. ongoing give and take. Interesting. Um, so I, I I can affirm Joseph Fielding Smith as a prophet because I believe God called him to that position. And it's easier to do with, with someone who's been dead for 50 years. Sure. To sure. wrestle with those things. Yeah. Um, obviously. But that's amazing. I, I love that perspective. I think it's really valuable. I think it, it simplifies things for, for myself and for hopefully a lot of people out there. Um, I want to talk about this for another two hours, but we can't. All right. Um, do you have any final thoughts before we wrap up? I guess I guess maybe one thing that you can talk about is if people have questions for you or if people want to know more about this subject from you, where can they go? I write a lot of this on my blog at bensbackman.com. 
I've got some uh, YouTube videos and some podcasts and a lot of writing. But in 2022, we should have a special BYU Studies issue out talking about evolution and LDS faith. We're going to have some scientific articles, but we're also going to have a number of articles on scripture and interpretation and LDS history. And that will all be free and online from BYU Studies. Saints Volume 3 should be out sometime next year, which will cover some of this early period. I think it goes through the 1950s. I don't remember. Um, that will cover some of this stuff, at least the time period. And then, you know, if you want to talk details of evolution, find one of the BYU professors, because there are a whole bunch who teach evolution, and they're very good at it. They've won awards at it, and they receive a lot of non-LDS funding for it, because they are very skilled at it. Guys, go check out Ben Spackman's stuff. Thank you for being with us today, and I'm excited to do a couple more episodes with you. Stay tuned for those. Thanks. See you guys later. Thanks for listening. If you want to watch our videos, check us out on YouTube or shoot us a message on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter.